Hello everyone and thank you so much as always for clicking on this podcast and this particular episode of Joe Blogs about films, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener. Like I state in every episode, it means the world. Thank you so much for clicking, for spinning, for sharing, whatever it is. Thank you so, so much. Monarch Legacy of Monsters has now finished on Apple TV and for the most part, this was a very well thought out and put together show that sits very nicely within the Monsterverse. It does bridge the gaps between films and we also got to see you know, a little bit further behind that curtain and more monarchy things as well as setting up other companies such as Apex Cybernetics who would become a bigger player of course in Godzilla versus Kong. But all of this, including that dual narrative of being in the 50s as well as the 2000s, was really intriguing. Like Every aspect of this was really intriguing. It had me itching for what, what was to come, the next Titan, what would pop up next you know, and cause further mystery and mayhem. But sadly, the series became a little dull and murky in the middle, something I think could have been avoided had the series been shorter. I previously did a review for Monarch on the back of the first couple of episodes, and so I will try to avoid repeating my previous thoughts, but it was a great shame after those first couple of episodes and being really hyped and invested in the story to then becoming just deflated and almost seeing this as a chore to finish towards the end like it really really did i stated on the last review how the series seems to have taken the one thing that most fans and audiences aren't too keen on within the monsterverse the human characters and stretch their side of the story out for 10 episodes is absolutely gonna make or break this show now i wouldn't say it was as black and white as that you know for the rest of the series but it certainly was a slog and a struggle with certain aspects. However, the show did have its real standouts with these characters. Mary Yamamoto as Keiko and Kurt and Wyatt Russell as Lee Shaw, respectively, deserved the highest of highest praises. As well, the fantastic cinematography, courtesy of Jean-Philippe Gossart, Chris Seeger and Sam McCurdy, that really were very visually pleasing in places. Some of the colours in this show are staggering, especially when it came to the limbo world, we should say. Honestly, those sequences in this setting were very, very great and fantastic visually. If you're a fan of Godzilla and this monsterverse in general, then, like me, you will find elements to enjoy. The show does answer a few things, whilst also leaving some questions unanswered and the door open for a second season. Of course it does. It's just a shame that the journey wasn't as smooth as the show started out in those first couple of episodes. And that is what we're going to talk about a little bit more in this episode on Joe Blogs About Films. With spoilers, of course, and this is available on Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts. As to RSS.com, jump onto Facebook and Instagram, search Joe Blogs About Films, give us a like and follow on there. That would be great. If you could too, hit the notification button, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast from. And finally, leave us a review. Hit those star icons on Spotify or wherever. Leave us a review. That would be awesome. In 2015, one year after the re-emergence of Godzilla, half-siblings Kate and Kentaro Randa investigate their missing father Hiroshi's connection to Monarch, the covert organisation monitoring giant monsters known as Titans. Two generations earlier, Bill Randa and Kei Kamura are scientists involved with the early development of Monarch. Former Army Officer Lee Shaw becomes a close ally to the Randa family across both time periods. Again, just a quick reminder that there is a previous episode about Monarch Legacy Monsters on this podcast, so I might skip 
or gloss over certain elements that we've already talked about in that first review. So do check it out if you haven't already. But in that first review, I was mostly positive about Monarch Legacy of Monsters and just what was to come. I loved every moment of being back in the 1950s and watching these three monster hunters in action is something I was hoping that the show would run more with. Sure, of course, yeah, the series does sprinkle this time period throughout and we learn and see the early developments of Monarch as to the struggles that the team had with getting the project off the ground and taken seriously for starters. But I still feel that there was more that we could have seen in that time period. I mean, to be fair, I would have taken a whole show set in that time frame rather than the odd moments, but that might just be me, eh? And I did feel that the series handled that balance well of flipping between the two time periods. Like, it's crazy to think that those opening title sequences from Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film would then come back around into a, a fully-fledged series. I prefer not to have everything over-explained and to leave a little bit to the audience's imagination, but I will say that legends of monsters didn't ruin those sequences for me and if anything they used those images and scenes that we saw in the 2015 gods of the film as a way to propel the story further which again was mostly successful we also got to see fully that moment of the army try to destroy godzilla on the beach with a nuclear bomb in which again the stakes were so high for all in that moment i think this was probably the series's highest point until the finale because it was so intense for everyone, this moment. You have Keiko, Lee and Bill who all don't want to see this monster destroyed, none more so than Keiko. And then you have the classic military colonel or whatever rank he is who sees this threat and thinks, well, that's got to go. And it was all just building and building this huge explosion that really did make you feel empathy for our heroes, as well as the beast in the firing line. What was great about the sequence for me was that we know how it all plays out. We've seen this footage before, albeit from a, a different perspective. Like We know that Godzilla isn't killed or destroyed and will eventually return, but somehow the show still puts you at the edge of your seat, Like regardless of that. This is down again to that care that we have for characters such as Keiko, as, as they are our heroes in this story, and ultimately they are right with their theories of monsters existing in this whole different ecosystem underground, yada yada, and so we're rooting for them all the way through in a series that is so packed with dud characters and very meh moments. It's great when the show got it so right with these particular moments, or rather these specific characters, as we are constantly wanting them to succeed. Now, I will stick with the characters for a little bit longer because this show, it's got the great and it's got the, it's got the awful. Like the greats, as mentioned a few moments ago, the trio from the 50s and then obviously Kurt Russell in the 2000s are all fantastic and had a great relationship between one another. I just, I wasn't overly fussed about the love triangle aspect of the trio, but I do think that the three together were a joy to watch and as already stated, you wanted them to succeed at every opportunity. Credit to the writing team and casting team as well to get both Kurt and Wyatt Russell in as they as they were brilliant as Lee Shaw. I thought he was a very good character growth for Shaw from where we start with him in the 50s to where he is in that present day. The show's present day, that is. Once he saw the bigger and albeit scarier world, he dedicated his life to Monarch, only to then be imprisoned pretty much by the very organisation that he had dedicated a lot of his life to. So there's inner conflict there and a love-hate relationship towards Monarch in his present day. And, and I really liked this conflict. At one point, I thought that Shaw was going to end up being linked to the eco-terrorist group that Charles Dance was part of in King of the Monsters. But again... 
That didn't happen, but it would have been cool. But hey, who am I to say? I, I just felt like they were leaning that way. Anyways, didn't happen, so moving on. But after episode two, we assume that Keiko has sadly passed following the fall that she has into that hole within the nuclear plant where all those like insectoids have been residing and nesting. Now, the hole, of course, we learn leads into this limbo world between Hollow Earth and the surface world. Now, this is where the show was grey and it really began to answer questions, you know, in terms of gravity and time surrounding Hollow Earth. We'll obviously cover a lot more on this, but just for starters, time works differently. And so basically, people don't age when you're in this, this realm. This leads then to... I would say the most well-performed moments in the entire MonsterVerse, not just this TV show, but the MonsterVerse in general. As stated, Keiko fell into this realm and now is a grandmother to Anna Sawaz, Kate, Randa, and Ren Watabe's Kentero, the obviously half-siblings that we're following as well within the storyline. But Keiko has missed so much of her son's and grandchildren's life that the weight of this knowledge and seeing her granddaughter all grown up in person it's just too much to handle. Added as well that Lee Shaw, who had previously experienced being in this limbo world and unknowingly spent 20 years down there, he's here too, but he has aged, obviously, in the many years that Kiko has been lost. And again, it just adds to the shock that her character goes through. Now, Mari Yamamoto's performance here is stellar. Honestly, incredible. The way she handles and composes herself and realises the gravity of the situation before taking a minute to understand just what exactly has happened. It was really moving to watch. Added as well to this moment, it's this wonderful performance, but the score as well here elevates this performance so much that like the strings are almost fading in and out, creating this dizziness that the character would be feeling. And there's also like this ticking that's playing out at the same time, almost symbolising you know, the ticking of a clock in which time hasn't stopped for her while she was lost in this world. I, honestly, it was all really brilliant, and her reunion with Kurt Russell's Lee Shaw was definitely one of the show's, if not the best emotional beat that the show had. Now, I don't want to stick around on negatives too much because that's no fun, but I did find a lot of the story revolving around Kentaro, Kate, and May, obviously played by Casey Clemens, was all very boring and brought the show right down. The legacy that Kate and Kentaro have to Monarch was, again quite intriguing but it never reached a boiling point or a real payoff when it came to the circumstance with their father Hiroshi it was okay I guess seeing them work things out within his office all that using the sun on the map to work out the pinpoints of these entrances to the limbo world but I just didn't think it was all that gripping especially with that whole cat and mouse aspect of them being chased by monarch officials as well I just it just got really boring and some of the acting wasn't wasn't the best very questionable at times that leads me as well to Joe Tippett's character, Tim, obviously worked for Monarch within the show. He was okay. Like, I, I didn't mind his performance. I felt that, again, just got a little bit stale. Like, I, I, I'm not sure whether I was supposed to like him or not. I, I get that, obviously, started out as that character that we all weren't supposed to like and thought he was, like, the bad guy of the bunch. And I did like that, that shift of making Monarch look like bad guys, but it's just, again, all, you know resolves itself kind of thing i just i'm not too sure if i was drawn in by joe tippett's performances tim i thought it was fine did the job really well and again some good relationship and dynamics between other characters in there but when you've got a show that's part of a monsterverse that's solely focusing on characters you're going to get ones that you're not going to be overly too fussed about we should say and it's just a shame that i didn't enjoy these characters in their storyline all that much considering that when i last spoke about the show I was saying how real all their performances felt and just how I was looking forward to seeing more of it. Be careful what you wish for, eh? Because it is probably down to the stretch of 10 episodes 
that just didn't help this particular part of the plot, you know? But in terms of monster action, the show didn't have all that much. Not that I was expecting that at all, because this, again, was a very story and character-driven piece. But the moments where we did get to see some monsters were a lot of fun. Like, I've already mentioned about the sequence where Godzilla appeared to be destroyed by the nuke in the 50s, and I love just how, like, baby-like and youthful Godzilla looked, we should say. Didn't look at all as big and as powerful as he becomes, and that's thanks to the nuke itself. You know, it certainly helped develop Godzilla into the protector and beast that he is. But like I said, there wasn't that much other than just these little sprinklings here and there of monster action. Like the main monster action that we got was in that finale where Godzilla appeared to take down the new Titan we see in the show named the Iron Dragon, I think it is. I thought the CGI and special effects were top-notch, to be honest, in this particular sequence. Certainly, they saved a lot of the budget for these kind of moments, and when you have a very grounded story that's built around characters, I guess it does allow the budget then to be used elsewhere because they really utilised the effects well. Like, the fight between these two giants was short-lived, but it was cool to have some form of monster action nonetheless. I was just more entranced by the new world more than anything. Keiko calls this limbo world Axis Mundi. Now, in mythology, the term Axis Mundi has been greatly extended to refer to any mythological concept that represents the connection between heaven and earth or the higher and lower realms. And so this fits perfectly for this realm between the surface world and hollow earth. Co-creator Chris Black stated they didn't want to ruin the story created already in films or spoil future films, but that the team wants to do something different that fans hadn't seen in the films or in a story before. And I personally quite like this twist of having this Axis Mundi. It's just, it added a little bit more context to this wider mythology of where these monsters can go to avoid being detected. Again, that's, that, that is unless you like Monarch or Apex who can track anything, it seems. Now, the whole setup and visuals of this place was truly remarkable. I mentioned previously about the cinematography and the colours, but honestly, the colours being split between, like, blue and red, again, that can represent the idea of heaven and hell, but also the link between hollow earth and the surface world. Like, I loved the jungle side of this terrain as it, it again, brought that feeling back of Skull Island, one of my favourite films in the MonsterVerse, obviously. But the blue colour could as well be linked to that energy source that they find in hollow earth. There's an awful lot of blue in there that we saw in Godzilla vs. Kong, and so this energy could be feeding either from or to... Axis Mundi, who knows, eh? Maybe they'll tell us more in future stories. <laughs> like, I do like the concept of time not working the same, you know, as it again raised stakes for the show. If you fall into this place, what feels like minutes or days that you've been there is actually years on the surface world. And we get so many great moments because of this. In particular, that opening sequence in episode nine when we saw it, when we see Lee Shaw lead Operation Hourglass and enters the void into Access Mundi. Probably my favourite opening to an episode within this series. But finding out he's then been gone for 20 years when he re-enters the surface world was a great twist and one that did surprise me. It definitely felt like a oh yeah, of course, that's why Kurt Russell isn't as old as he should be, that kind of moment, you know? I'm hoping that should we get season two, that we get to see more sides of this universe, like an explore, access Mundi more so, especially considering that Shaw is still stuck in there on the events of the finale. Obviously be presumed dead, but this show loves to throw surprises at us, so you never know. 
But overall, like, if it was just a somewhat Monarch Legacy of Monsters, it was just a mixed bag for me. Like, I loved the 50s storyline and the build-up with that, to have the dual narrative as well and be able to successfully blend the two together and come round to a nice, neat ending was really executed well and it didn't feel that jarring at all. It's just a shame that the present-day storylines just takes a bit of a bumpier journey before we get to some real good juicy bits, you know? The show leaves us with our heroes on Skull Island with, with Apex, Cybernetics, of all people, in 2017 as Kong stomps in to say hello. So there's, there's of course, new territory and new material for the team to work with should they do a season two. Now, I would just say that in terms... In terms of a project within the MonsterVerse, this is the weakest thing that's come out. But it does have some excellent moments and top performances from Mari Yamamoto and Wyatt and Kurt Russell. You only have to look at the ratings of each episode on IMDb to, to really have a picture painted of just how up and down this show was. But on saying that, though, like I say, I will take any Godzilla project. So keep them coming, you know, <laughs> keep them coming. I'm certainly going to keep an eye out for season two announcement. I'll be surprised if they don't get a season two, but you, you never know. It depends what, what Legendary wants to do, I guess, with these monsters and these stories. But I don't really see any cries for stop, you know, so I would expect that season two will come. And I'm intrigued, you know, I mean, where they could go with it, especially like where the show leaves us because it didn't feel like, yeah, it ends this particular side of the story, but I still feel like there's so much more that they can go with because, again, we're only seeing so much of time. There's still so many more areas that we can go over, like the build-up to obviously, you know, the creation of Mecha Godzilla and what happened after Ghidorah and everyone came. So they've got a lot to play with, a lot to play with. It's just a shame that on the back of those first two episodes, this series wasn't as good as what I wanted it to be. Out of 10, 6.5 for me. But again, let me know your thoughts on Monarch Legacy of Monsters. If you stuck around to the end, if you caught all of it, if you turned off, switched off, if you weren't bothered, I don't know. Just let me know your thoughts, basically. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this podcast. It really means the world. Until the next episode, take care.